0: You're listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. Here's Nate. In our last study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first eight verses, we had an opportunity to discover effective gospel ministry, so to speak. The effective way that Paul the Apostle did his ministry amongst the thessalonian believers the message that he preached was the gospel and i shared with you how our message at all times and really in all kinds of situations whether it's Counsel or encouragement or wisdom or discernment or direction or salvation ought to be the message of the gospel. Jesus must be held high and central to every part of what we communicate to people. That's the message. And we looked at the motivation, the very pure motivation of Paul, the desire to please God, not a flatterer. Not a greedy man or a glory-seeking man, but a man who was just simply looking for the good pleasure of God upon his life. And then we saw the love of Paul, the method in which he served the Thessalonian believers, like a nursing mother with her children. But the last half now of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, provides us with a wonderful opportunity to catch a glimpse at a very idealistic, gospel-centered kind of community. In other words, you have Paul as the initiator and the bringer of the gospel to the city of Thessalonica. And then you have the Thessalonians as the receivers of that message. And here in this second half, as Paul is reminiscing about his time in Thessalonica. In the second half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we have a wonderful opportunity to see how that relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians worked and how it developed and what made it so effective as the gospel went forward into that community of people, that community of believers. And so let's take a look at this uh, today. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and following. It says in verse 9, Paul, speaking of his ministry, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, verse 10, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct Toward you believers. This is very interesting coming from Paul. He basically, in a nutshell in verse 9 and 10, is talking about the integrity of his ministry there in Thessalonica. And I think integrity is a word that when it comes to modern ministry, modern effective ministry, and integrity is something that really I think must be paid attention to. I mean, we we must think about our integrity. We must think about people that are honest and have strong moral principles and a moral uprightness. When somebody says of a man that he is known to be a man of integrity, when somebody says that, and we see that wholeness in them, that undivided nature to them, that lacking of corruption, that consistency within them, When we see that about them, there's just an admiration, I think, that immediately flows from us towards that person who has that integrity, that mark of integrity upon their lives. That's the first thing that Paul does in this passage, is to draw their attention to the integrity that he and Silas and Timothy demonstrated Well, they were with the Thessalonian believers. And they demonstrated here in this text today. They demonstrated that integrity in a couple of strategic areas. First of all, they demonstrated, notice it in verse 9. He says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Well, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Integrity area number one was in the work ethic of Paul the apostle working night and day not desiring to be a burden while they proclaimed the gospel now the style of Paul this is very interesting because of course Paul is the man that gave us you know things like 1 Corinthians chapter 9 i mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 you have a strong theological case presented for the provision financially towards those who preach the gospel, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And Paul, of course, at moments did receive financial compensation. The Thessalonian church would become a church like that, and the Philippian church had been a church like that, financially supporting Paul. And it's probably in one sense how Paul was able to refrain from financial support for a season at least in Thessalonica. And so Paul's style, however, seems to be that when he was in an environment where there was contention, which was often in his case, he would pay his own way. So He really doesn't push that as a model of ministry upon other people, but that was his model. That was his conviction, and that was his heart. And it's very possible that he used the trade that he had learned as a young man, that of making tents, to support himself in the city of Thessalonica. And so he worked hard in the sense that he worked hard with his hands. You know, He made sure that he was funded. But beyond just that, he also worked hard in his teaching in his teaching, you know he was strong and steadfast in the preaching and in the teaching of the Word of God. ministering to the people was difficult, hard, laborious effort and labor from paul so Although he had this right to receive compensation from them, he had written in first Timothy five verse seventeen, he said, "Let the elders who rule well." be considered worthy of double honor. This is financial, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. But all of that said, still, Paul was a man who here in Thessalonica, he holds out to them and he says, listen, think about my integrity. I wouldn't even receive a paycheck from you while I was there ministering amongst you. Man of Integrity. And you know what? I'm I'm always challenged by how often Paul was willing to lay down his rights, aren't you? I mean, willing to lay down his rights of you know financial uh compensation for doing the work of the ministry? I think of his attitude towards the potential stumbling of brothers who uh would stumble if someone were to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul had said, listen, it's it's a nothing. The idol is nothing. And if your heart is true to the Lord, true to God, sure, it's fine. You buy some meat in the marketplace. If it's got a history where it's been sacrificed to idols, whatever. No big deal. But if anyone would be stumbled by that, I would never again eat meat. Paul was just so willing to lay down his rights. Meat, money. These are things that I would have a difficult time laying down. But Paul was willing. And I think he had learned that, of course, from Christ, who had laid down his life and laid down his rights for us. But notice, moment, the area of integrity number two. He says in verse 10, he says, You are our witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. He describes his conduct, and this is what where his area of integrity was, was in his lifestyle. He describes his lifestyle as holy and righteous and blameless. Holy and righteous and blameless. Hmm. Listen, I could believe, but I would be believing wrongly that a powerful sermon must be, equate to or equal spiritual health or fruit in my life. But I know that that is not the case. I might be able to preach. I might be able to communicate. But woe is me if my life, my lifestyle, isn't a lifestyle that is filled with integrity. And we can read the stories of of old. We can read of Ananias and Sapphira and the lack of integrity they had in Acts chapter 5, the hypocrisy that they demonstrated. We can see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We can see the lifestyle of Samson in the Old Testament. And we can see these different characters that we would look at and say, no integrity. But we recognize that as shocking as their lives may have been, this lack of integrity is horribly present with us today. And... God's desire for his servants and his ministers is a life of integrity, uprightness, being in the light, being true, being accountable. You know, here in the fellowship that I teach and preach at and lead, God has just led our little team of of leaders to make sure that we are on, uh, that we carry short accounts with each other. We get together frequently for You know, retreats and mountaintop experiences, so to speak, where we reconnect and we get fresh with one another in the sense of saying, listen, let's re covenant with one another the practical things that we are going to do to make sure that we hold fast to our integrity. We will not be pastors who are taken out through sexual sin, through pornography, through theft and greed and stealing. We are going to keep each other accountable in these areas and in these ways. And I think those are some good things for us to implement so that we will have ministries that are full of integrity. The lifestyle of Paul was a lifestyle of integrity. Now, Paul also in his ministry, not only was he filled with integrity, but you have to notice in verse 11 and 12 that his ministry was very fatherly. Very fatherly. There's an absence of strong fathers, at least in my country at the moment. But It says in verse 11, he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, this is interesting. Back in verse 7, Paul had said, I ministered among you like a nursing mother Taking care of her own children. But here he says, I was like a father with his children, like a father with his children. This is interesting. Right? It is true that the, the body of Christ, the church, does function a little bit like a family. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verse 1 and 2, he said, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all or with all purity. And so the body of Christ is a family affair in one sense. And Paul would look at the Thessalonian believers and like a father he would minister to them. It's interesting to notice how a father did ministry in the mind and heart of Paul. He said, we exhorted each one of you. Verse 12, we encouraged you. And we charged you. These words are fairly similar in essence. They, I'm sure, have slightly different variations and meanings. To exhort, you know, to call up to one side and to urge, literally. This is what a good father does. A good father calls a child up next to himself, holds him or her and speaks to them, urges them, but in a gentle way where they're pulling them aside and holding fast to them and encouraging them. Uh, Then he says encouraged. Uh, That word means to console or to cheer up or to comfort. And a good father does that. A good father promotes action through the cheering up or the consolation of his children. And then he charges. To charge literally means to testify. And a good father won't just tell his children what to do, he will testify of what he has done and what God has done in his life. And that was Paul in the way that he ministered to the Thessalonians, exhortation and encouragement and and charging, and telling them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And listen, at this point I would just pause for a moment, and I would exhort and I would encourage and I would charge you like a father with his children, And I would say you can do this. You can walk worthy of God. You have that ability. You have that grace. You have that strength. You have access to every divine resource to be able to do it. Walk worthy of God. Now, if I could take a liberty here for a moment and just pause and point out, in the mind of Paul, fathers used words. Fathers used words. I think at this point, I really could preach an entire message on how to be a good father. And I think one way that you would be a successful dad in this life is to use your words, to use them well. You will use your words as a father for something. Your silence and absence of words will be deadly. Your harsh words will provoke your children to wrath. But encouraging, comforting, helpful words will spring up into a well of life inside the heart of your children. Use your words as a father well. Paul ministered in a very fatherly way towards the Thessalonian believers. Now in verse 13, he goes on, and this is where he speaks about the reception of the Thessalonians and how they received his ministry. He had integrity and he had a strong lifestyle and he was very fatherly towards them. But this was their response to the gospel-centric ministry, so to speak, that Paul gave to the Thessalonian believers. He said, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is an absolutely beautiful verse to me. In other words, the Thessalonian church, what were they? You know, Paul was a man of integrity. Paul was very fatherly. But the Thessalonians, they were accepting they were accepting and not the, not the brainless kind of accepting. They were sharp thinkers, but they accepted. They, Paul says, received the word from him. They accepted the word from him. He says, you didn't hear it as the word of men, but you heard it as the word of God. And you think about that. Think about the difference. <laughs> Some of you maybe teach and preach the word of God from time to time. And many of you, I'm assuming, listen to and receive the word of God from time to time. But you know what it's like when a person receives it as the word of God versus as the word of men. With the word of men, what do we say? We say things like, "That's your, that's just your opinion. You know, in the medical field, what do we do? Even a highly educated, highly trained doctor, we look at them at times and say, that's great, but I'm going to seek a second opinion. We read the news today, we hear the news, and one of the first things we ask is, well, does this news organization have a liberal bias or a conservative bias? We take it with a grain of salt. We receive it as the word of men. But when Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, it was not the word of men that they were hearing. They believed that they were receiving the word of God, which means it was authoritative. It was final. It was unchanging. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 29, verse 3 and 4, when he said, The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Oh, the voice of God. It's just different. And here's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. He's saying, listen, you know, when I preached to you, I was, of course, preaching the word of God, but you actually received it and accepted it as if it was the word of God. And I think we could say it like this. There are two parts to every sermon. There is the delivery of the sermon, and then there is the hearing of the sermon. And the Thessalonians, when they heard it, they received it, and they accepted it. So, listen. It's so important for us to receive it as it is, as the Word of God. The Bible is not like any other other book and should be treated as such. You know, when I go to the word of God, I'm a pastor. So as I read the Bible on my own, it's very tempting for me when I'm reading the Bible to read it, not as the word of God, but as the place where sermons are found or good points or nuggets are found. But I have to approach it as the word of God, as the thing that that is designed to communicate with me and with my soul. And I think that we can often do this. We can perhaps listen to a message or hear the word. And we're we're trying to find a word of comfort, perhaps, for, for somebody else. We're trying to get information solely or only. We want to be able to lead a discussion on the particular text. But it's good for us to stop and say, this is the word of God. And to receive it as, as the word of God. He says, you received it and you accepted it. But then he says this fascinating little thing when he says, which is at work in you believers. Isn't that fascinating to think of the word of God being at work in the life of a believer? The word of God rolling up its sleeves and like a seed going down into your heart and at work growing to produce fruit. Like a hammer breaking the hardness of heart. Like a scalpel cutting between the division of soul and spirit. Like food, like milk or bread or meat or honey, fattening you and nourishing you. The word of God, man, it is working inside of you. It's just a wonderful thing to remember. He says you received it as the word of God and because you did, it is working inside of you. It absolutely works. Then he says to them in verse 14, he says, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. He says to them, he says, listen, I know that you were a suffering group of believers. And I think it's it's interesting. I mean, they, they received the word, but they received the word really at all costs. Some of you may be living in a country or in a place where As the gospel goes out and the word of God is delivered, there is a great physical cost that you have to pay to receive the word of God. And and I think what I wanted to say at this particular point, because Paul says to them, he says, listen, you suffered the same things as those believers down in Judea, down in Jerusalem, who were persecuted for their faith. And he says in verse 15, he says, And these are the same people who killed both the Lord Jesus. He suffered and the prophets and drove out, drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. In other words, Paul says to them, he says, Listen. You're being persecuted right now, and you need to understand that those who are persecuting you come from a long line of persecutors. They persecuted the prophets. They persecuted Christ. They persecuted the early church in Jerusalem. They persecuted us, Paul would say, and now they're persecuting you. And I would extend that out even further and say, and now they're persecuting many believers in our modern era. And when we receive the word, we receive it at times with a cost. For some of you, your persecution will be very real, very physical, very painful. You will go through great physical trial as a result of believing and trusting in the gospel. We pray for you. Our hearts go out to you. Be encouraged, brother. Be encouraged, sister. A day is coming when you will see Christ face to face. And every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow will be completed. Your work will be done. And you will enter into the permanent place of the joy of the Lord. Some of you, however, your suffering, your persecution is much less minor, but is still significant. Some of you are going to lose a a girlfriend. You come to Christ, you give your life to him, and she wants to have nothing to do with you. Some of you are going to lose your friends. Some of you will be ridiculed because of your faith. You'll be disowned. You'll be shunned. Perhaps you'll be overlooked for a promotion. You're that crazy Christian praying before a meal. Well, It might not be a physical suffering where you've got scars on your body as evidence, but it's suffering nonetheless. And I think it's good for us to remember Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says that there is a thing called the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, the conformity to his death. There's a fellowship with Jesus that you can find when you experience that suffering for the cause and for the belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Suffer well, believers. Stand strong in Him. Now we close out this chapter in verse 17 by seeing the simple longing of Paul's heart for the Thessalonian believers. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person and not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Notice here, Paul asserts his authorship of this epistle. He's been saying we quite often because of Silas and Timothy. But here he says, I, Paul, again and again. He says, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or or joy or crown? of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you for you are our glory and our joy. You know, I talked to you about Paul's ministry style, his integrity towards the Thessalonian believers, his fatherly words for the Thessalonian believers. And we looked at the Thessalonian believers and how they received the message. What a beautiful gospel community, the integrity of Paul, the, uh, reception that the Thessalonian church gave to him, the fatherly words that he spoke into their lives. But what you see here is that it comes full circle. And Paul just says, listen, I I love you and I care for you and I long for you. I had to leave you in body because of the persecution, but I never left you in heart. And I want to come back to you. And Satan himself is hindering us. But he says, Thessalonians, you are our joy and our crown and our boasting. You are our glory and you are our joy. And that, my friends, is the true pastoral heart. Paul would not lose the memory of these believers. They were his glory and they were his joy. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, Or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.